Uh, before I get started, um, I selected this passage because all my life I had an issue with it. Um, growing up, uh, I grew up thinking that I completely understood what the word fairness meant, that I lived myself or lived my life with fairness. Um, I grew up in elementary school. I had to the teacher that if one person did something wrong in the classroom, you knew what happened. The whole classroom got punished. And that got in my craw constantly because I did nothing. If I did something wrong, you punish me. But if I did something or someone else did something wrong and uh, I didn't do anything, leave me out of it. That's just who I was. And so looking at this passage, I started this back in July first of July, and I thought this would be a good passage to journey down because I thought I, I finally understood it. And even uh, listening to the psalm that was read during prayer, uh, God's, I, I didn't realize how big of a hang-up this was with me. So if I get emotional during this, it's God's mercy is just uh, revealing himself to me, and it's it's a, it's a remarkable thing that he loves me that much that he still contends with me the way he does. But if you remember in the last message that I gave, it was about Mephibosheth and about David and how David's showing the kindness of God to him. And I shared that I was taught that the Old Testament was about be likes. You know, you need to be like David. You need to conquer your giants. You need to be like Joseph. You need to be like Moses. You need to be... Uh, like Jacob. And all these different issues that I had started to uh, cause problems when I started uh, really looking at the scriptures because I just didn't add up. Uh, I had to dismiss or over-explain something in scripture and it was taken out of context. And with that mindset, this passage in Numbers never really settled well with me at a very early age. Uh, I live my Christian life with a notion that in the back of my mind, stuffed away, never really to think about it unless this story was brought up or the topic of fairness was discussed, that if God was really fair in this instance. And of course we think, of course he is, he's God. But it constantly gnawed at my back of my mind. But the Lord has taught me, he's directed me, he's even right now, he has hedged me. Uh, in my walk, and it wasn't until I started to understand Reformed theology that this story was never about Moses. It wasn't about whether or not Moses should have been allowed to go into the promised land. It was much more important than that. It was about the salvation of the Lord and how God shows this whiny, grumbling, complaining group of people who thought they were entitled of how important the salvation is. Here begins the last three narrative travels of Exodus through Numbers. The first one was the Red Sea to Sinai. The second one was the Sinai to Kadesh where they sent out the spies. And now we are now at Kadesh getting ready to cross over Jordan to the promised land. This is the end of Moses' life, 120 years. 
The last 40 of those years was with these people. He started the exodus in what it looked like that it would only take in a couple of months to do. And it ended up being a 40-year ordeal because of the discipline of the people from God. The reason for this discipline was because of their unbelief in God. They were at Kadesh Barnea and about to go into the land that God was to give them. They were right there at the precipice. They were ready to step into it. And they had an idea to go ahead and send out 12 spies. They were going to do a recon mission. And 10 of them, when they came back, 10 of them said, no way. There's giants. There's no way we can take this. And so the people became fearful, and then they did not take the land that God gave them. So they went in circles for 38 long years, roughly. And God told Moses that this generation would have to die before they would be allowed to go into this promised land. So now... They are at the end of this 40-year wilderness trek. Imagine all the opposition that Moses faced during those 40 years. All the grumbling, all the whining, all the complaining, all the entitlement. Think of all the death he had to watch. A whole generation had to pass. And now that they've come full course and they're back at the place where they started from and where he sent out those spies before, and now they are finally ready to take this land. This is a wonderful time that is about to happen. They are about to cross over the Jordan and walk into this land that was promised, that was given to them by God. But now we are at a time in Numbers 20 that describes us as a, a, a tragedy and not a celebration. Moses lose sight of the one that he has served all this time for just a moment. Moses makes it all about himself. He stumbles and he falls. I'm going to read this passage again, and I want you just to listen where Moses went wrong and made it about himself. <clears throat> now there, were two, there, were no, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation. And you and Aaron, your brother, will tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before, them, before the Lord as he had commanded them. 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with God. And through them, he showed himself holy. Saints, make sure you do not fall into believing that it's all about you. No matter how hard life gets, Make sure that you rely on the one true God to sustain you, to calm you down, and to guide your steps in a perilous minefield. That if you make one wrong step because of your pride or your rebellion against the authority of God, the consequence can be as weighty as Moses's. Looking at our passage, the first thing that we need to recognize is the grumbling people. Forty years, this generation made it all about them and lived in disobedience and bowing up to God. Moses has been forced, really, to endure this because he's not the one that said we couldn't go. The people didn't want to go. Verse 2 says this, Now there was no water for this congregation. Of course, it was the wilderness. They haven't had any abundance of water during their whole 40-year trek. But God, in his faithfulness, provided for them through this whole period. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses struck the rock at Horeb, and God provided water for them. He provided water for them for the whole 40 years. So on this day in Numbers 20, there's no reason for the people of God to doubt him but because of their own disobedience they complain and now they assemble themselves against Moses and Aaron and they in reality assemble themselves against God and they start contending with God now Moses was well aware of how well the Hebrew people whined and complained I mean this was not his first rodeo with them Moses was introduced to this negative mindset of the people way back in Exodus 5. This was the first encounter with Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, if you remember, punished the Hebrews by not giving them full straw, just little bits and pieces for their brick. And this was their response to Moses. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Exodus 15, they complained about the bitter waters. Exodus 16, they complained about starving and God provided them manna. And remember, 
both of those instances were right after God delivered them through the Red Sea. The last time that we were against, they were against Moses was just in Numbers 16, four chapters before our passage, where Korah gathered 250 well-known men from the assembly, and they rose up against Moses and challenged him. And God ended up having the ground open up and swallow them and kill them. But let's go back to the passage. They assembled themselves together against Moses and to Aaron. Verse 3, the people quarreled with Moses and said, would, they, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now, this is a reference to number 16. When Kor led that rebellion and the ground swallowed them up. They were saying that they would have been better off to have been swallowed up by the ground than to sit there and endure without water during this time. Verse 4 and 5, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Ah, Egypt. I, I remember it so well. The food, Moses, the drink. I, I mean, sure, we were slaves. I mean, we were beaten, I know. I know we were beaten, and some of us were killed. But boy, that food, that wine, that was something to behold. There's a saying that I think to myself when I or anyone exhibits of not being content. And it's based off in air conditioning. In the summer, I like it 70 degrees in the house. In the wintertime, I like it a little bit warmer than that. Well, actually, a lot warmer. And, and the phrase is this. As a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot. Always wanting what's not. As a rule, man's a fool. That's me. We may think how stupid they were to think this way and to have this mindset, but how often do we run back to the sin that we as saints were delivered from, knowing that the taskmaster that, has, that, that deals that sin wants to destroy us. There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Now, this is really ironic, them saying this, because if we look at what they're complaining about and the lack of, it's ironic because Look at what they turned away when they decided that they couldn't trust God and go into the promised land when the spies came back. In Numbers 13, verse 23, it says this. And they came to the valley of Ishkel and cut down from the, a branch a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought back pomegranates and figs. They had it, but they choose not to, and now they want to complain about it. What a rebellious group of people, whining, complaining, crying, grumbling, criticizing. Why? It was all about them. Now let's look at Moses and his response in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went to the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. These two 
were spiritual and godly leaders. This was their common response through this whole thing. If you look in, in number 16 during the rebellion, they did this numerous times. They didn't first go and talk to other leaders within the group to get an advice thing going. They didn't even take a poll among the assembly to find out which direction we should go. They ran to God. They sought God for leadership, for counsel, and for wisdom. And they fell on their face in humility. Then we read that the glory of the Lord appeared around them. And in verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff. Now, let's stop here for a second. You can almost hear what Moses is thinking. <laughs> yes, take the staff. I tell you what, it's woodshed time. God, I'll take that staff, and if any of them try to run, I will grab a hold of them and kick them back into play for you. Judgment is here. No, that's not what God desired. And assemble the congregation, and you and, your, and Aaron, your brother, will tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Moses, you're to speak to the rock. The love that God had for that, for that people. The mercy and the compassion. The grace that he showed. Rather than discipline, God in his mercy gives them water. Yes. Our God is so gracious and merciful. He's loving and saints, when we deserve judgment, he gives us mercy. Moses just holds the staff. Just hold it. Let it be the symbol of my presence. Moses, just hold the staff. And all I want you to do is speak to the rock. And the rock, by my sovereign will, will bring forth the water. Moses was just supposed to be the messenger. Just like all the other times, this was nothing new to Moses. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Just obey me, Moses, and watch me provide. Verse 9, we see the start of the defiant sin Moses commits. And Moses took the staff, from before the Lord as he commanded him. His response starts off as we would expect. His response seems to be complying with God's command. But, but it goes south very quickly. Why? Just like the congregation, Moses made it about himself. And you can imagine Moses going before the congregation. You know God's spirit was convicting him. Shut it down, boy. Slow. Back away. But he just bowled right through it. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. And with this, Moses' powder keg was lit. 
his frustration, his anger that was pinned up possibly for 40 years exploded. And he lashes out to the people of God. You see, God told Moses to speak to the rock. And instead, Moses speaks to the people. God wanted to bless the people with water, and Moses slams them with accusation. Moses continues to speak to them. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Look at that word, we. That's a word that is used when God's glory is trying to be stolen. And it's a lie told to the people, and Moses was supposed to be the shepherd. Moses couldn't bring forth water from the rock any more than you and I could bring water from a rock. And now he's taking credit for only what God can do. God is decreasing, and Moses is increasing. This is the farthest thing that's from when we hear the verse spoken. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Moses is still in God's glory. Verse 11, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. God still blessed the people in spite of Moses. Because of their leader and how he fell, God's mercy was still given to the people. God didn't tell Moses to lift up his hand. He told him to lift up his voice and speak to that rock. Moses struck the rock not once but twice as he vented his anger and frustration over this ever-rebellious group. As in previous circumstances of this kind, the rock was a symbol of God's mercy and faithfulness. So striking the rock was, in a sense, striking out against God. This was an indication of how angry he was with the people. He was violent. And God was so gracious in the spite of Moses and allowed the waters to still come forth. Now, when we think about Moses' sin, it's pretty obvious what the sin was and what happened. But there's just a few of them that I want to share with you. One, he disobeyed God's word. God told him to speak to the rock, and he struck it twice. Saints, God's work must be done God's way. There's no wiggle room. It's got to be done according to, God, according to God's word. We are not free to invent God's ministry. We're not free to reinvent God's church. This is why we go by the regulative principle. And it's such a comfort to know. Number two, he took God's glory in this. Moses made this all about him. And stood and said, we will bring from water from this rock. Moses is the Lord's servant. He's a vessel. He is the clay on the wheel. And he takes responsibility and glory. He sinned against God in his glory. Number three, Moses acted in anger that was not righteous. 
at camp last weekend during our prayer time, Clayton read Psalms 106. And Psalms 106, 32 and 33 paints this perfectly. It starts by saying, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his, spitter, or his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. James 1.20 says, For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. We cannot act out in anger. And it didn't end well with Moses. Despite all the years of faithfulness and obedience, Moses stumbled at the end and was not allowed to enter the promised land. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I had given them. You notice how he said that? That I had given them. He always said that I have given you. Moses is out of it now. Aaron's out of it. Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them the, and through them uh, he showed himself holy. All disobedience is a failure to trust God. All disobedience is a treason against God. And slow obedience is still disobedience. I'll just add that. The reason Moses acted this way, he believed that they should have been disciplined and not blessed. He thought that he knew better than God. And he acted on that thought. And by doing so, the holiness of God was assaulted. It was an attack on his glory. Moses' disobedience treated God as unholy and impure that God doesn't matter that God doesn't know what he's talking about and saints this is serious God takes his glory seriously and saints we need to we do not need to make this about us we challenge his authority and we're going to fall Moses, you will not go into the promised land and you will go up into the mountains and die. Sounds harsh. But not from a holy and righteous God. According to what his idea of fair and holy is. Not mine. Honestly, Moses should have been killed way back in Exodus 2 when he took the life of that Egyptian. But God didn't allow that to happen. Why? Because it was never about Moses. It was about protecting the seed that would come from the woman that would crush the head of the snake that was announced in the gospel in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
this is the gospel all the way through the Old Testament. And that particular announcement in 3.15 of Genesis happens on the cross at Calvary. Why? Because it is about us, saints. And that's why Moses only needed to speak to the rock. Turn to Exodus 17 for me. This is the first time that Moses uh, brought or struck the this is when Moses struck the rock and water came forth. We know the story. But I want to read it and I want you to understand the importance of why Moses should have spoke to the rock and never struck it. All the congregation of the people, starting with verse 1, of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried to the Lord, What shall we do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you the, some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you and there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The way this plays out in this passage is very, very specific and significant. The Israelites have put God on trial through their grumbling. And so the courtroom is arranged. The representatives of Israel is on one side, verse 5. And then God said, I will stand before you on the, on the rock at Horeb, verse 6. So God is on the other side. And in this case, it's Israel versus God. In the middle is Moses with his staff. Now, we're reminded in this passage that it is the staff that brought judgment on Egypt. So Moses is there, as it were, the judge, holding the staff. And all this takes place in front of the people. They are the public gallery. So that everyone can see what's about to happen. We know that Israel is guilty and deserves to be condemned. And we know that God is in innocent and he deserves to be vindicated. But God tells Moses, strike the rock. The rock where God is standing. It is the most dramatic and surprising moment probably in Moses' life. Moses brings down the rod of judgment on God. And God takes the judgment that, is, that his people deserved. 
And as a result, blessing flows to the people. As the water comes out of the rock to quench the people's thirst. And for us, there's more. That rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says, And all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What happened at Massa was a picture of and a pointer to the cross. The great court case between God and humanity comes to its climax. On one side was guilty humanity, deserving to be condemned and sent to hell. On the other was the side was the perfect, sinless Son of God, Christ the Rock. And God the Father said, strike the rock. And the rod of his judgment fell on Jesus. Jesus is both the bread who satisfies our needs and the rock who bears our judgment. As a result, blessings flow to God's people. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christ was crucified once and only once. Never again will this rock ever be struck. We now come to him and ask. He meets our deepest needs. He gives us identity, fulfillment, forgiveness, a relationship. Above all, he gives us life. He gives us a future, an eternal future in God's presence. Jesus gives us himself. And that is a gift that endures beyond death. We look for satisfaction in wealth, but wealth corrodes. We look for satisfaction in our careers, but at best, at the end of our careers, is retirement. We look for satisfaction in the admiration of others, but our looks fade and our powers decline or someone else more admirable will come along. We look for satisfaction in relationships. But people betray us and we're left hurt. Even when these things endure, church, we don't. We die. And death robs us of all these things for which we have lived. For we take none of this with us. There is only one exception to that, and that's Jesus. Death does not rob us of Jesus. Quite the opposite. It opens the door to a greater experience of his glory. Look to Jesus to be enough for you. And there will never, ever come a day when he is not enough. The cross is the measure of his generosity. Jesus has given everything to us and for us. He left heaven for us. He knew hunger and thirst so that we could be satisfied. He sweated blood in Gethsemane for us. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten and ultimately crucified for us. This is how generous he is. He gave his life for his people. Do we really think the one who gave us everything he had for us would not give us everything that we need to us?
eternity is the measure of his gift. What he gives is eternal life. This really is the gift that keeps on giving. This gift never runs out. This gift will never wear out. Our life now may not be the life that we thought we were going to live. But our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Jesus will give us all we need today. And one day we will see the greatest reward, eternity with him. Let's pray.